This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Well, we've got to the end of another week. Uh, The news has been uh, pretty grim. Uh, but uh, hopefully you're doing okay. Uh, today, uh, we've reconvened the Times Radio Focus Group in association with Kex CNC. It's a cracker today. Uh, we uh, decided to go and test the blue wall. Um, and by total coincidence, the seat that we ended up choosing and recruiting the people from, Dominic Raab's constituency. Uh, so find out how the Tories are holding up in their former safe uh, southern seats, but also what do Dominic Raab's own constituents think of him. Uh, that's coming up with James Johnson uh, in a moment in our big thing on the podcast. But first, as ever, our columnist panel. Uh, and today we've got Melanie Reid from The Times and The Daily Mail's John Stevens. Um, I suppose we should start initially just getting your uh, reactions to what has been happening uh, in Afghanistan and, and what impact the uh, the two terror attacks uh, which we saw yesterday will have on um, the public opinion and also sort of political strategy. Your take first of all, John. So obviously yesterday was an absolutely terrible day and then you've seen today that our evacuation flights coming out of Afghanistan are going to start winding up at some point today. I think the next few days are going to be really difficult for the government when you've got pictures on the news of desperate people who just didn't make those flights back. I think that's when it's going to be hard for really for Boris Johnson and his ministers. And obviously last night you saw President Biden at that press conference. He just seemed overwhelmed. He seemed a bit confused. He was rambling. And I think it's going to be really hard for him with the American public. And you could see that on his face. He just looked like someone who'd been defeated. Uh, And Melanie, Tom Tugendhat, the chairman of the uh, Foreign Affairs uh, Select Committee, but also uh, he served in Afghanistan himself, he's described it saying we may find ourselves the biggest hostage crisis the UK has ever seen, which I suppose is basically the implication of there will be people who we would have liked to have got out of Afghanistan who are going to be trapped there. And we no real way of knowing how to get them out. I, I sadly, I, I think that that's inevitable. I think there will be people here that, there that we would have liked to get out. And it, it's it's dreadful. It's terrible. Um, I, I, sad, sad to say, but I mean, we have short memories. And I think I think that it, it won't take long for people to forget some of that awful stuff. To be quite honest, I think a lot of people have stopped watching it. 
Mm. Um, and I think they will will see a language change. You know, when when a humanitarian crisis starts to become unwanted immigrants and 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 the poor, you know, you start to to there will come a point at which people will start. To, what's the difference between? You know the benighted Afghan asylum seekers arriving at Dover on a on a rubber boat, and and the poor souls that we're seeing trying to escape from the Taliban. I mean, I I, I don't like it, but it's 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 the real world, isn't it? Yeah, I was going to ask about that about because um, uh, Boris Johnson talking yesterday about. Um... Uh, trying to find enough housing to accommodate uh, Afghan refugees. And he said it was, it was he's basically looking for enough housing to accommodate a whole new town. Um, and I just wonder how quickly, John, the, the sort of the public mood of this is a terrible situation in Afghanistan, we must do all we can. You start, you start coming up against people actually saying, well, we don't want Afghans in our town. We don't, you know, you know and it, there's a sudden real tension there. Yeah, I think for the moment you're seeing lots of local groups popping up, trying to organise collections so that people can get clothes, people can get toys. Obviously, a lot of these people have left Afghanistan with nothing but the clothes they stood up in. You've seen the conditions on those military flights where people were just packed in, they had absolutely nothing with them. So I think actually there's a lot of kindness out there. I think a lot of people will do all they can to help these people. But as Boris Johnson pointed out, there are an awful lot of number of people that we have managed to rescue. I think it's about 15,000 people, which he said is the same number of people as live in Beaconsfield or Presswick or Abergavenny. And how do you kind of integrate those people into the country? Obviously, you've got the problem of being able to find enough houses. One of the issues that was raised earlier this week was a lot of these families, I think, have uh, up to seven people in them. You just don't have the housing stock of those larger houses. So where do you put those people? And then obviously the thing that you want to do as soon as possible is integrate those people. So get those children in school, get those people in work. These people want to contribute to our country. But to be able to do that, they need to be in communities where they're kind of settled and can start to kind of put down roots. Yeah, and I suppose a lot of it is just to do with it, that being handled in, in the best possible uh, way, so you don't avoid, so you're trying to avoid um, uh, some of those problems. Uh, so let's move away from Afghanistan now, because we'll obviously be talking about it uh, throughout the show today. Um, Melanie, uh, we can't uh, speak to you in Scotland and not get your take on this uh, this decision by uh, the Scottish Secretary Alistair Jack to, to give um, Nicola Sturgeon something to aim for. He said that uh, if polling consistently shows 60% of Scots for, uh, want a second uh, referendum, the UK government will, will give them one. What do you make of that? Well, it's interesting because he said he doesn't sort of say they have to get 60% in a referendum. He says um, we have to have 60% wanting a referendum, uh, not wanting independence, but wanting a referendum. And I find that, that you know, it, that's a bit of pinhead dancing. It's a bit disingenuous, <laughs> isn't it? Um, because, you know, who's going to want a referendum if they don't want independence? But so the you know, semantics going on there, too. But I also think it's it's interesting because the figure that's privately thought of by the SNP as, as a kind of a safe, as you have to be polling safely and consistently at 60 percent before you even go to a second referendum. So, you know, it, it tallies very much with uh, Nicola Sturgeon's own caution. 
Yeah, and I suppose the thing is, John, is at the moment you you there's uh, both sides are quite happy for there not to be a second referendum. Boris Johnson could keep saying no, and that keeps his side happy. Uh, and Nicola Sturgeon could keep saying, "Oh, Boris Johnson keeps saying no." How typical. Uh, without uh, actually wanting to have a referendum, because the polling shows that she she might struggle to win it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Sorry, sorry. Go ahead, John. Sorry. Yeah, you've, I mean, you've seen Nicola Sturgeon talking about a referendum in the next five years. She's never suggesting one in the next few months. Just kind of pushing things backwards, as you say. I'm not sure she particularly wants one for the time being. But there is so much small print in this uh, statement from Alistair Jack. Not only is it 60% of people wanting a referendum, not 60 people wanting independence, it also says that that polling has to be the same for a sustained period over a reasonably long period, whatever that means. So I don't know whether that's months, whether that's years. So I don't think this is the British government handing out an olive branch saying, oh, if you get this, we're going to give you a referendum. I think it's just saying something which they know is not going to happen for quite a while. Yeah, I was, I was looking. I think the most recent one was a poll by Redfield and Wilton uh, at the beginning of August. And it's found it, uh, on the question, do you support uh, a referendum on Scottish independence in the next year? It was at 47%. So that's there's quite a long way to go there before. So maybe they have just set a, set a target. To li- I don't want to be cynical, but maybe they have set a target. <laughs> they don't expect it to be reached. Um, uh, Melanie, um, something else that I know you're interested in, and I, I was struck by this, uh, actually. Um, I was down in Hastings at the weekend, uh, which is somewhere I lived about 20 years ago, 19, 20 years ago, um, and just noticing how many department stores have disappeared. Uh, you know, big, you know, what you were big sort of uh, mainstays on the on the high street, if you like. Um, and there's this, this figure out that the UK's lost 83% of department stores uh, in the five years since the collapse of uh, BHS. Now, is this is that just an inevitable part of the changing way that we shop, Melanie, or do you do you, do you, um, do you mourn their disappearance? Oh, I, uh, it's inevitable, and uh, uh, but I do mourn it because I mean it's 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 a lost way of life. You know, but Matt, think of the the, the, the ghosts of all those little children being towed around there by their mums. <laughs> you know, there are all these great empty Debenhams lying along, and etc. And Frasers lying around, um, you know, high streets everywhere. And inside, inside the the ghosts of all of us when we were children. It's, I mean, you must have, you must. We've all been there. Yeah. We were dragged round, sort of. Do you remember the smells? The smell, the, the sort of being surrounded by sort of rows of clothes that you couldn't see around, <laughs> loit- loitering outside changing rooms, trying on school uniform that apparently you were going to grow into. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 and the tiny lift. Do you remember that the, they always had these really tiny pokey lifts because they were always, uh, the lifts had always been put in sort of afterwards. Yeah. yeah. And, what about you, John? Well, the only one I really like that feels like a safe space to me is John Lewis, but the other, <laughs> the rest of them just feel like a higgledy piggledy mess. Don't tell Carrie. No, <laughs> you go in. You know, they're all these different floors. They've always got these strange layouts. A lot of the older ones, where you just poke around all these different corners. And then you go in, there's all these makeup things that you have to kind of get through like an obstacle course and then you get stuck and you can't even remember which way's out anymore. So I find them quite intimidating. And the smell, the sort of the wall of perfume, the sort of amalgamation. Oh, waving of... perfume in your face. <laughs> yeah, it is. You, you can see why they've had difficulties. But obviously the problem is what do you do with these massive spaces 
in town centres. And there's a piece today talking about how in Edinburgh, their, uh, I think it's uh, their BHS, they're turning part of it into a hotel, part of it into offices, part of it into a bowling alley. I think some places are doing kind of indoors crazy golf. The House of Fraser in Edinburgh is being turned into a Johnny Walker experience. But I think for a lot of, that's easy if you're Edinburgh. Obviously, that is like prime space. A lot of people want to go and stay in Edinburgh. I think for a lot of towns and cities, they are going to struggle to fill these spaces. There's some figures showing that BHS, which shut down five years ago, a quarter of their stores are still empty. And, you know, there's only so many bowling alleys that towns can take. There's only so many crazy golf places people can uh, places can take. And I think a lot of these places sadly going to stay empty for a long time, particularly when there is not a massive outcry of people looking for office space at the moment because of working from home. What What's the betting that in a few years' time somebody's going to turn around and say, hey, listen, it w- wouldn't it be really environmentally sensible if under one roof we had everything in there? <laughs> fashion and sports gear and school uniform and makeup and, and you could go for a coffee and a scone and and, and and buy a toaster down in the basement and and buy your buy your exercise books for the new school term. I mean, it, you know, it's it's. I bet you, I bet somebody you, will reinvent it and make it sound incredibly uh, <laughs> appealing and new and fancy. And, and you imagine, okay, imagine that if you ever have grandchildren, and you're you've got these these children, and these these young people will look at you in wonder and say. You mean you used to go one-to-one shop to buy everything? <laughs> well, I suppose in and a way the department store has been slightly replaced by the sort of the massive um, shopping centre because that's essentially what it is, but it's all indoors. So you don't have to go outside. But those big sort of your Westfields and, and all that sort of thing. Um, but you, but, but uh, uh, letting the shoe shop do the shoes and the clothes shop do the clothes. And you, you avoid that, that brilliant scene in... Uh, Father Ted, where you sort of go into a department store looking for a kettle or something, and you end up, you turn a corner and suddenly you're surrounded by bars, uh, and the group of priests <laughs> desperately trying to get out of the uh, lingerie department is one of the great, um, one of the great scenes in uh, in Father Ted. Um, before I let you go, um, if either of you got any polit- items of political memorabilia or your roles in political, you must have loads, John. Well, a lot of it is from when I used to stalk Farage in the 2015 election. <laughs> there is loads of UKIP tat, like stuff like a UKIP popcorn thing. They did some launch where you got popcorn in a UKIP branded box. That's folded up somewhere. I think the best one is in the 2015 campaign, Farage randomly flew to um, Strasbourg to the European Parliament. And on my way out, they were changing the flagpoles outside where you've obviously got all of the European flags lined up and this man was just putting them all in a cardboard box i said oh what happens to the flags now and he said oh we just bin them so i've got the um union flag from outside the european parliament but the problem is it is so big there's not really many things you can you like you couldn't display it inside your house because it looks too much there's only very limited occasions when you can fly outside without looking like you're a total loon. (laughs) for the most part it just sits in the cupboard um folded up but it is there I was. I, I did wonder if you were going to tell the story about the flag. I wasn't sure if we could discuss the flag. I'm just disappointed you haven't had it up behind you on on sort of Zoom appearances on TV. That's the sort it's, of thing you'd be in the cabinet by now if you'd had that it's, up. It's so yeah. Big. It, the the thing is, it's also it's not like a nice material. It's a bit wiry and it slightly smells. So that's why you wouldn't want it up in your house too much. <laughs> 
Melanie, can you beat a an actual flag from the European Parliament? Oh, I'm going to no, but I'm going to try. I um, before before Tony Blair was was became ele- was elected, but when he'd been made the new this shiny new le- uh, leader of the Labour Party, um, I was tasked to meet him at six o'clock in the morning. Um, to get him to persuade him to eat a Scottish a Scotch mutton pie. Um, <laughs> in in the have you ever heard of the Barrows in Glasgow? Yes. Which you know it's like this sort of giant feral street market, and <laughs> and um, they had they had, they had this sort of uh, uh, greasy uh, 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 you know cafe uh, tea and cafe place greasy spoon place. And um, so we we had the perfect we had the perfect pie for him, and ever since I've had a picture on my wall of Tony Blair having an Ed Billib- an Ed Miliband moment, <laughs> me me interviewing me with a notebook and him with his jaws just opening to devour this mutton pie, and <laughs> it, it was it was page three of the paper. That's very very good. John Stevens and Melanie read that. And, of course, you can read Melanie in The Times tomorrow on Saturday. You can read me in The Times on Saturdays too. Just get yourself a copy of the paper or subscribe. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, it's our monthly focus group. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast. Now let's find out when we convene the Times Radio Focus Group in Dominic Raab's constituency. Each month we assemble a group to get from the voters' mouth uh, what they think of our political leaders. And former number 10 pollster James Johnson was in the chair again as ever. And James joins me now. Hi, James. Good morning. So uh, legally we are obliged to begin our deliberations by me asking the question, what is a focus group and why is it different to uh, opinion polling? Yeah, so a poll is out there to survey 1,000, 2,000 people to try and find out, sort of get a picture of how the public thinks. The focus group is not there to sort of be a substitute for polling. It's only a group of six or eight people 
Um, and rather than being the sort of um, statistical finding on how people think, it's there to explore how they sort of think and feel about things. And we went to Isha and Walton uh, for this focus group this week. Um, and rather than selecting a representative group, we're looking just at those people that the polls tell us are moving and are interesting. And they are, in this case, people who voted Conservative in 2019 who are now undecided about how they'd vote. And so, yeah, the conversation we had a few weeks ago was to, to test out the blue wall in the wake of that Cheshire and Amersham by-election where uh, the Lib Dems uh, beat the Conservatives in a previously safe, southern, slightly more Remainery uh, seat. So we thought, well, let's go to uh, another seat <laughs> like that. Where did we end up? Yeah, so we ended up in uh, Isha and Walton, uh, only about uh, 40 minutes on the train from south of Waterloo. Um, and uh, as I say, we're talking to those conservative voters um, who really are behind some of those trends in places like Chesham and Amersham. Um, they voted conservative in 2019, um, and they're now sort of on the fence about how they'd vote. They told us they were considering voting for either Labour or the Lib Dems or even the Greens. Um, and these are really the key sort of uh, the key group when it comes to what happens in seats like this. Isha and Walton, it used to be a very, very safe conservative seat. It had a majority of more than 25,000 only in sort of 2017, 2015. Uh, it's now got a very small majority. And it is, of course, uh, Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab's seat with the Lib Dems in second place. So a key sort of um, seat in terms of the future of the Conservative Party. Yeah, it was ahead of a move. In 2017, uh, Dominic Raab had a majority of almost 24,000. It's now uh, just a bit over 2,500. So that's the background uh, to it all then. We will come to what Dominic Raab's voters think of Dominic Raab in a moment. But uh, as ever, we, we kick off with uh, just getting a feel of where they are uh, politically. And uh, you just asked them, what do they make of, uh, of Boris Johnson? I think he wants to give the impression that he's really scatty, but I think... Um, he is. Yeah, I think he may well be. But, he, you know, I think how much of that's bravado, I'm not... I'm, I'm, not, too, I'm, not, I'm not sure. Um, charlatan, funny man off the telly. I, 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 when he was mayor of London, I, I sort of quite liked him. But over the last um, 18 months, I just, I can't quite believe that, um, how things have gone. Huge amount of syrup is what he will need with all that waffle he's been talking about. Yeah, the first, first word that came into my head was capitalism. I don't know why, but um, yeah, that, that's the, the word that spun into my head straight away. But. Um, I think he's very resilient um, in sort of weathering everything, everything that's thrown at him. However, I think he kind of had this sort of uh, persona of being um, quite sort of fun, easygoing, spontaneous to kind of win people over. But I think now in the job as prime minister, he needs to be a little bit more conservative with his actions and his... Um, privacy really his private life i think he he talks the talk but he doesn't deliver so there we are that was uh, their take remember this is a uh, previously safe tory seat these are people who voted conservative in 2019 uh, james johnson your your key takeaways from that well certainly a more critical of a view of boris johnson than we do get in some of the uh, northern midland seats where the conservatives won for the first time in 2019 these voters much more critical, and they were much more likely to invoke things like character, competence, 
ethics, personal life in a way that doesn't really come through uh, in some of those other uh, red wall seats, as, as we might call them. So certainly a feeling that Boris Johnson um, was slightly losing his way with these voters. They talk positively about him um, at the start, and they talk positively about him, particularly in relation to Mayor of London, which came up quite a few times, not just in that one clip there. But a feeling, perhaps, uh, in the words of one of those voters, um, that, that he was a bit tired, um, that he potentially uh, lost his way. Uh, and that was interesting, is, is that the, the, these are obviously people who voted for him and actually had a bit of a sort of sense of disappointment. It came up quite a few times uh, in mm. the room. We should explain, it's the first, it's the first one of these that we've done uh, in real life up until now. Um, all of the times radio focus groups have been on Zoom. So getting them in one room and getting them to sort of um, uh, interact with each other a bit more. Several of them brought up the fact that they remember when Boris Johnson was mayor of London and that was more the Boris Johnson they liked than the one that they've got at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, I think they, they sort of feel like that was a sort of a more bouncy, a more conservative Boris. Um, remember that these voters are longtime conservative voters. Um, they voted for David Cameron. One uh, voter earlier in the focus group said that they, they really had fond memories of David Cameron. Um, Boris Johnson, perhaps not quite being that for them. The other thing is, and I mean, Matt, we know this from the tweets that we get every time after we do this show, People you know, tweeting in or, or texting in very frustrated about how why voters can't see through Boris Johnson, in their words. Um, it's quite interesting. In this seat, you really did get that sense that voters were not only criticising Boris Johnson, but they were also talking about how quite a lot of the sort of smiling and, and, and the sort of bouncing around was a slight act that they felt they were seeing through. And, and the other thing that, that came up a lot, which I was surprised about, was up until now, when we've done sort of red wall seats, we've had... Uh, Labour voters who've gone Tory who've said, I've been a Labour voter all my life, my father was a Labour voter, my grandfather was a Labour voter, and now I'm just not so sure. Now that, you know, that bond has been broken. And we were seeing this in reverse, that people said, I've always voted Tory, my parents voted Tory, it was the done thing, and now I'm just... They haven't given up completely, but they're, they're, they're wobbling, and it is a sort of mirror image of what we've seen in, in some of those northern and midland seats. Yeah, it, it totally is, and it, it is it is fascinating how you know there is that there is that crossover there. You almost hear the same like for like, but just flip the other way around. Um, so yes, they are up for considering other parties, and that clearly is a worry for the Conservatives in seats like this. But there was still that sense of residual loyalty, although they didn't like Boris Johnson or they criticised Boris Johnson on the Conservative Party itself. They were still pretty positive and they were still those conversations that you hear in all the other seats and all the other focus groups have done. This feeling that few could do a better job, that a pandemic was difficult circumstances, that the Conservatives deserve more of a chance. Um, so, yes, you know, the blue wall is is creaking um, uh, and, and the, their affinity to the Conservatives and Boris Johnson might be a bit shaky. But that ultimate sort of sense of loyalty is still there. They could still be won back. They could go either way. And that, of course, is now the fight for all parties in the run-up to the next election. Yeah, well, let's talk about the other party then. Um, Keir Starmer's had quite a rough ride in our focus groups in the past uh, year. Uh, I, I think this is the, might be the first one when um, nobody said, I don't know who he is. So let's take a listen to what the focus group had to say about Keir Starmer. Well, again, he, he does... Talk the talk, um, and I think he's quite sensible in many things that that he actually says. But I I, I don't think he's he's been tested enough. Um, so promising, but I think his potential is suppressed at the moment because of 
everything that's happening. Uh, one, one word that pops into my head is law, but um, I guess, yeah, like you were saying, with all the COVID stuff going on, I'm not really sure I have too much of a strong opinion either way. Um, presence and dominance. I think he's improving. Uh, it's quite un- uninspiring. I, I have also watched PMQs, and I think he he's all, almost comes across as a head teacherish like, I'm going to tell you off. <laughs> uh, I suppose there's a bit of that. I mean, a, a bit more positive for Keir Starmer than normal, James. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, and when we were talking in quite a lot of detail about their voting choices, a lot of these voters said they were much more open to voting Labour because Keir Starmer was leader rather than Jeremy Corbyn. That sort of Corbyn being removed as the obstacle uh, to many of these people voting is clearly an important thing that's happened since 2019. Yeah, people described him as serious, competent. I have to say, it felt a little bit like Keir Starmer was more like these voters themselves. Um, you, you could imagine Keir Starmer sat in the in the group getting on quite well with, uh, with with our focus group respondents this time. So yes, it's good news for Starmer, but of course we know from the polls that not much is shifting in terms of his ratings. So it may be that these Conservative voters have always quite liked him, but we obviously do know that in other places, Starmer is still failing to cut through. And I suppose the, the key thing, and this is why it's sort of interesting going to one particular seat, is that they might like Keir Starmer, but if you look at the electoral history of this seat, if they wanted to get the Tories out, uh, the Lib Dems are a much better place to do that. So there's this sort of conflict between uh, what they might want nationally or what they might think of people nationally and actually the the electoral maths in their constituency. Well, well I tell you what, we'll focus on that uh, next uh, when we'll um, ask this uh, panel of uh, swing voters in Isha and Walton what they think of their local MP, Dominic Raab. Well, he hasn't had a lot of great press recently, has he? Well, um, I think most people will know whenever the Afghanistan situation was emerging very, very quickly, he was on holiday. He was on holiday, And yeah. he stayed on holiday. He, would, he wouldn't deal with anything. He told one of his workers to deal with it and he forgot to make some sort of... Well, that's what the press said, something. so I, I'm... Well, that's what the, the, the news said. Exactly. Yeah. He's like a sociopath to me. <laughs> um, he, uh, he's now posing for photographs, posing for photographs on the telephone and tweeting, I called so-and-so, I called so-and-so, I called so-and-so today. Like, what article was I reading today? Um, said, well, that's your job. Do you want some ice cream or something? You know, like, that's what you should have been doing when you're on holiday, mate. You know, the foreign, foreign secretary doesn't get to go on holiday and things are kicking off like they were. Happy and disappointed at the same time. I think it's been a good local MP for the area. But when he's come to uh, step up to the plate and doing his job, he's been quite disappointing in recent times. It's been on holiday. I think he should have made that his first priority and dealing with the Afghanistan situation. Well, he seems like a decent enough guy and you know. Um but was it was he on holiday when it kicked off or was it gonna kick off and then he went on holiday knowing that it was gonna kick yeah, off. Yeah, for me that would be a key. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I I don't know, you know, if I knew the answer to that question he would if, it, if he knew it was going to kick off like it did and he needed to be around and he just went on holiday, then that that would lower him in my estimations. But would if he's friend. already on holiday, then I don't know. Even politicians need a holiday. Um, yeah, so mine, I, I'm still a little bit more um, open-minded to the whole situation of um, him being on holiday. I think with technology, I think he, he, he was informed or he was aware of what was happening and I 
guess a decision was made based on how quickly he could get back and what lines of communication was already uh, or how much he was involved with what was happening with the changing um, situation because what's happening in or what we're getting snippets of that nobody expected how um, quickly things would escalate there literally in days village or towns were being um, taken over so I think he, he probably had a clear line of communication going and decision was based on that I, I, I think um, okay there's there's technology around even if you're in another country or a lot of people work from home now you can still deal with things you don't have to physically be there he but I think as soon as there's some pressure or difficult situations they just want to bury their head so that's a group of uh, voters in Dominic Raab's constituency. And remember, these are the people selected because they said they voted Conservative in 2019, but now weren't sure. James Johnson is a good reminder of this, I think, about uh, local loyalty uh, to, to local MP, the incumbency that people often talk about, that actually, despite national widespread national coverage and condemnation of Dominic Raab, they're still willing to really give him the benefit of the doubt. They hope that there's an explanation for what's gone on. Yeah, exactly. I think that was holding back, you know, a lot of the fury. I mean, it's certainly, clearly, Dominic Raab has been bruised by this handling of uh, handling Afghanistan. And one voter in the group was so let down that he said he said he potentially wouldn't vote for him again. But for the majority of people in the group, um, absolutely right. Uh, there's a sense of loyalty. Um, there's a sense of well, perhaps he could have done it remotely, or perhaps actually he wasn't out there. Uh, he he wasn't, you know, he didn't go out on a holiday knowing what was going to develop. Um, and a lot of it as well stems from positive views of him as a local MP. Um, people talked about him uh, being active in the community. Um, one respondent talked about him being uh, very involved in local schools. Um, and that gives a bit of a, a defence for him as well. So, yeah, I think certainly going from this focus group, though obviously we hear their concern about Boris Johnson um, and their ability to, you know, their willingness to consider other parties, where the personal vote is concerned here, there's no evidence here of a clear sort of hemorrhaging of of, of Dominic Raab's personal vote in, in the seat. And I suppose, and I'm not sure, we, we don't do this very often on the, on, the, uh, on the focus group, but we should talk about the Lib Dems because the whole point of testing the temperature in the blue wall is to see not just our uh, attitudes of these uh, Southern voters towards the Conservatives, but whether or not they've got, they are prepared to make that switch uh, to the Lib Dems. They're the close second in Dominic Raab's constituency. So let's take a listen uh, to uh, what the focus group had to say about the Liberal Democrats. I don't really pay too much attention to Lib Dems, I think, years and years and years ago, ever since the whole uh, saga with the uh, tuition fees for the universities, ever since then, never looked back at Lib Dems. And that's always been the case, and never ever look at them the same way. After... um Nick Clegg and David Cameron, I've kind of um, lost, it. Uh, I'd kind of sort of um, hover around and see, you know, kind of see what their presence was. And, um, but now I, 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 I wouldn't even know if they still exist, if they're still a party, because I don't know anything about them, um, don't read anything, they don't really have a voice. Um, I thought it's like a finished party. Yeah, I, I, I feel the same. They don't really have a presence. I mean, it's between the two. You know, I don't think the Lib Dems really come into 
the vote, although yes, you can vote for them. I don't ever see them winning. Um, it's going to be Labour or Conservative, realistically, isn't it? So I, 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 th I think in some ways it's, it's almost like a wasted vote. Practical. If you, you know, you're not happy with how, how a Conservative are leading then, and you want to, because they've got an 80 seat majority at the minute, so they can pretty much do what they like. Um, and so therefore it could almost be a protest vote, we don't like what you're doing, I'll vote Lib Dem. I mean, not a ringing endorsement, uh, James. The the party which is best placed uh, to oust uh, the Conservatives in Eastern Walton, and they, they don't, they weren't even sure if they were still a going concern. Yeah, now of course, slight caveat, of course, that we're not in the middle of an election campaign, and clearly the Lib Dems did do a very good job of picking up Labour voters last time round. But yeah, I think this really poses one of the real problems for the Lib Dems now. A couple of people did get it. A couple of people did talk about needing to vote for the Lib Dems tactically here, and, 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 a, and a couple of people ended up saying they would do so if, if, the, if there were an election tomorrow. But it only gets you so far. And actually, these voters are actually quite high, were quite high information voters. They were quite engaged. But even still, people didn't quite um, see the Lib Dems as a practical vote. They saw it as a potentially wasted vote. Um, and there were concerns about the Lib Dem national brand, lots of mentions still of Nick Clegg. So what the Lib Dems really need to do if they want to really pick up in seats like Eastern Walton is, yes, local issues will get you some of the way. Yes, you know, issues like building on the green belt, which came up a couple of times in the focus group, you know, will resonate. But ultimately, they really need to make sure they have that strong national brand as well, so that voters, when they're thinking, as they do in a general election, not just about local issues, but about who's going to be prime minister, you know, who's best placed um, to you know, have, have an impact on, on national policymaking, um, that you know, they are also considering the Lib Dems too. So that's the challenge, that fight between the national and the local in, in voters' minds. And at the moment, the Lib Dem position is, is mixed in that regard. Um, we should just um, pause slightly just to mention Brexit. Um, the the uh, Lib Dems, obviously, in the 2019 were the sort of hard uh, opposers of, of Brexit. And this was seen as a way of sort of getting back into these slightly more remainery seats. But when we asked them, they were just said, no, it's done. Not interested. It's all over Brexit. And, um, and so to some extent, the, the Lib Dems need to find something else to sort of hook in uh, voters um, in the way that they did uh, back in 2019. Yeah, I think I think that's absolutely right. And there are quite a lot of restless narratives about why seats in the South might be going off the Conservatives. And one of them is that there are lots of very angry Remain voters still very angry about Brexit. We didn't pick that up at all. I haven't picked that up in other focus groups. It's not impossible that Brexit couldn't come back to the fore um, in, in a later general election, depending on what, what positions the party, parties take. But at the moment, it's really not not generated thing. Neither is this feeling that another Westminster narrative about this. Neither is this feeling that perhaps the Conservatives are putting too much money into the north and not into the south, you know, about levelling up. That didn't come up either. Yes, there were frustrations about Boris. Yes, there were frustrations about building on the green belt, um, but we've got to be careful that we don't just read um, what's happening in the South as being about Brexit, because the focus groups show you it's actually much, much more mixed than that. Well, you mentioned building on the green belt. Um, lots of people have said it's all down to the planning reforms, and that's why uh, the, uh, the Tories are in trouble in the South. And we had quite a, a long uh, exchange uh, on that when you asked them about housing policy. Yeah, I am in terms of how much um, green sites are being snatched or brown sites being snatched for um, housing developments. Um, you, you know, with, with our sort of sustainability and having a, a greener environment, it'd be nice to have 
green fields and I think it's like less than five percent of the of of the UK has got housing. I don't know. I like I like green open space. I love my mountain biking and so on. So I want to keep as much green open space as possible. I like to, yeah, almost considered cycling here through all the woodland, but I don't know. It is a bit of a concern to see what their opinions on what the direction is because I do feel having open green space is brilliant for the environment and in the direction that we're going at the moment. We could do with a lot of green space. So to see how they weigh it up will be quite interesting. It's awful at the moment because in Ripley, in Ripley Village, just down the road, um, there's a huge, um, and they're trying to grab the, the green sites and mm. all this beautiful farming um, land. And it, it's just heartbreaking what they're proposing um, to build. Quite a lot of it. And, and yeah. the flip side of it is that, you know, how much is it to buy a house? I, I couldn't afford a house now. Right, well, you, you choose an area of where you want to live because of its environment. There we are. So that was the reaction. We managed to cover just about every opinion there. On the what, you know, there's a local thing that people are very cross about. Uh, we like the green space. It's nice to go there on your bike, but also we do need more houses. But actually, we're not that highly built on, but also house prices are very high. We had the full gamut there, Joe. Yeah, and it's interesting because when you ask in polls what people uh, you know feel are the biggest issues facing the country, uh, house building or building on the green belt is is not top of mind. It's not up there with you know, the economy, leadership, COVID, um, immigration, all these other things. But clearly, once we dug into how they felt about it, you could certainly see how in an election campaign, um, particularly if you know the Lib Dems, for example, were to campaign on stuff like this it would resonate in a seat like this. Now, it might not be enough in a general election, as I said, but clearly this is an issue. Um, and, and the local example, you know, the lady talking about uh, Rip, Ripley there and the, the nearby village, um, really makes this real um, for these voters. It's not just something abstract. It's something they see happening in their local community and that resonates even more. And we'll see if that um, uh, emerges. So then uh, you you sort of pushed them, although it's some way off yet, maybe uh, two or three years until the election. Uh, but you asked them uh, just outright, if there was an election actually tomorrow, if they were forced to make a decision right now, what would they do? I would still probably vote Conservative because it's still a bit of a worry voting Labour. Although I don't like how the Conservatives are running things and I don't particularly trust Boris it's like the best of two evils, so I would still stay Conservative. Um, I would um, vote Conservative and I would stick to um, how things are because I think they've still got a job to finish there. Uh, Lib Dem. I, I want to I see something change, really. I think I'll go Labour. The reason being, it's there have been so many opportunities for the Conservatives to do to shine and step up to the plate, but apart from Brexit and EIA to help out, what have they really achieved? Um, in this constituency, um, I'd vote Lib Dem. I'd probably vote, oh, 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 no, I, it would be Lib, Lib Dem or, or Conservative. Um, probably at this moment in time, to give the Tory party a bit of a jolt, probably Lib Dem. So. So there we are. That was the uh, former, they all voted Conservative in 2019. How worried, if you were taking, as you used to, you used to have to go and break the focus group news to Theresa May, uh, James Johnson, if you were taking this this message back to Boris Johnson, what, what would it be? Well, it would clearly be, you know, there, there is clearly a bit of an issue in these seats. I think I think we, we know that. Um, and clearly some of these voters were thinking about voting elsewhere. But it is still very possible to win back. And I think that, we see that these these 
these votes for the Dems, these votes for Labour that we heard there, they're, they're very soft. And you can see um, throughout the focus group um, arguments sort of winning them back to the Conservatives and winning them uh, to, to the other side at various points. I think that w- clearly one thing we haven't, haven't mentioned that came through really strongly in the focus group was just how popular Rishi Sunak was in these places. Yes, um, as so ever. I think I w- yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, so I think I would say you know, try and get Rishi Sunak front and centre in a lot of these places because um, he makes these voters feel much better about the Conservative Party. Clearly needing to step carefully uh, on the green belt. But I think the other thing that came through was just how strong the argument of the economy is for the Conservatives uh, in these seats. And lots of people still thinking about the economy, still concerns about Labour having control of the economy, even though they liked Keir Starmer. Um, so I could certainly see you know, quite a strong narrative around the economy helping the Conservatives in places like this. Well, it's fascinating as ever, James. And yeah, when you asked them for a direct message to Boris Johnson, lots of them said, change the cabinet. Uh, which I think basically means uh, we want more Rishi Sunak and, and less, of, less of the West, including possibly their own local MP, uh, Dominic Rubb. James, lovely to speak to you as ever. James Johnson, former number 10 pollster, chairing the latest Times Radio focus group in association with global communications firm Kex CNC. Well, that's it for this episode of Red Box. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. Maybe even leave us a rating because it helps with the mumbo-jumbo charts. And if you want to read more about all of the stories we've been discussing, then go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.